yesterday was the full moon in May, and that is the traditional holiday of Vesak. This tradition. So I've kind of taken this week as our opportunity to talk about things related to that. That's a holiday that celebrates the birth and awakening and parinibbana of the Buddha, the time he passed away and passed into final liberation. And so it's a time for us to reflect on our relationship to the path, to the practice, to the Buddha, if that's relevant to us, and to consider you know, what it is that's most important to us about the development of our heart and maybe time to have some aspirations. There's got to be some reason why you come and sit here for 45 minutes just with your eyes closed. So the way I thought I would approach this today is to, um, at least we'll see how it evolves. I wanted to begin talking about um, two qualities that are balanced in the practice called um, faith and wisdom. And I know faith is a word that has some trigger for some people, depending on your background. So I'll just say that it can also be called confidence or conviction or trust, other words like that. There isn't really one word that captures um, everything that's in the, the Pali word for that. And then it's interesting to think about that in relationship to wisdom, um, which sometimes people think of as almost the opposite of being more you know, cognitive, more... I don't know what, although wisdom is really not cognitive. So faith and wisdom are part of a set of qualities called the five faculties, which are the things that, the qualities of character and of mind that we're going to need to be able to walk the path. And they're not anything that we need to create. That's the beautiful thing about the five faculties, is that they're considered to be qualities that we all have automatically, just by having a mind. The mind has the ability to have some confidence in something. You wouldn't do anything, actually, if you didn't have some degree of confidence. Uh, It's just our basic way of approaching things. We decide something's worth doing, basically. And then there are uh, four other qualities, which are energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So I'm not going to talk about all five of them, but they're bracketed on the ends by faith and wisdom. And there's a nice image for these five qualities, which is a carriage that's being drawn by five horses. And there's a lead horse in the front, and then there's two pairs of horses behind it. And it's said that the lead horse is mindfulness, which is the one in the middle. And that's the one that stands above, that kind of regulates and balances and the lead horse is kind of the one that sets the pace. And then there are these pairs of horses behind, and those pairs are faith and wisdom and energy and concentration. And those two each have some balancing between the two of them. If you have two horses running side by side, it's not good if one of them is running faster than the other one, or if one of them is much bigger and stronger, and the other one is smaller and weaker. It doesn't really work. 
So those need to have some balance if the carriage is going to go forward smoothly, the carriage of our path. So I want to focus for now on this um, on this faith and wisdom balance. Oh, there's a nice quote about this five-horse image. It says, if faith and wisdom are balanced and energy and concentration are balanced, the lead horse has little work, <laughs> which I, I can kind of understand intuitively, right? So, so this word faith. Um, it's important to understand that this is not belief. Really, um, this practice and, and path are not about belief. Belief is uh, something that closes the mind down, that um, starts with a, has a fixed view about how things are, and then everything needs to conform to that, or it gets pushed aside or fought against. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a closing down kind of mind. And faith is, even though it sounds similar, is almost the opposite of that. The sense of faith is a sense of openness, of placing some trust into something, even if we don't know everything about it, but we're open and willing to try, willing to see what it is. And we have some sense that it's going in a good direction. That's the positive aspect of faith. And I feel that way about this path. I certainly don't... You know, when I look back, maybe I can see it better almost when I look back, I see that I didn't always know um, which way it was going, but uh, it sort of didn't matter at the time. It's like, okay, I'll take the next step. And then that, that helps me look forward from where I am and say, okay, I don't know exactly what's going to happen or what's going to unfold, but I have a, a clear understanding in my heart that this is a good direction to go in, that these practices develop the mind and heart well, and that there is going to be an ability to meet whatever comes, and that the heart is developing toward greater wisdom, greater energy, greater concentration, all the things that are good. So, faith is essential at the beginning of an endeavor, being willing to take that first step, But in a sense, it, it's, um, it's important at the end also, you know, all the way through. So there's a saying, the last step depends on the first step, which means you don't get there unless you start. <laughs> you have to take that first step. The last step is dependent on starting. And it also, there's also a saying, though, that the first step depends on the last and what that implies is that your aspiration, what it is that you're aiming toward, uh, affects how you start, right? If, you're, if you know you want to go to San Francisco, you're going to go in a different direction than if you want to go to L.A. And so we make some decision, not that we're completely accurate and it changes over time, but we make some decision the direction we want to go, and then that sets the tone for the, the beginning of the journey. our aspiration changes over time. So I remember that when I first came to the practice, like the very first time I went to a sitting group, I'd been sitting on my own for a while, and then it occurred to me that other people might do this too. And so I went and I found a local group where I was living at the time, 
and I showed up the first day, and I discovered that um, just like when I walked into the room, I felt like the people there were very comfortable with themselves. Like that was my impression of them. That was sort of what my mind could take in. Um, wow, these people seem, and they, they weren't like overconfident or arrogant, but they were just very comfortable with who they were, just interacting naturally. And at that time, I wasn't that comfortable with who I was. And so that stood out to me, and I thought, I think I'd like some of that. That um, that would be good. And so, you know, in a sense, that was my very first little aspiration. And then over time, I had, I had other ones develop. Um, but it's important to kind of have little milestones or ideas in mind like that. And I think each time we redefine our aspiration along the path, we decide, oh, this is, this is a refinement or this is a new thing that I'm looking toward. I think each time we make that decision internally, um, different paths open for us. So we don't need to feel like this one path that seems like it's before us right now is the one that we're going to walk all the way to the very end. I think the path itself actually changes over time. We take a few steps and then there's a different one that opens because of where we got in those first few steps. But I mentioned this sense of balance, and if, if there's too much of this quality of faith or trust, uh, there can be an imbalance, actually. If you have too much of this openness, it can lead to credulity or overly devotional behavior. And it doesn't um, develop, for lack of a better word, the oomph necessary to um, actually shine the light of wisdom and to actually cut through the difficulties that we have. You know, this path is not that easy to walk, and we're going to encounter all those aspects of our character and our personality that are holding us back, you know, the ways in which we've shut ourselves down or uh, not understood ourselves or we've developed poor habits of communication or aspects or, you know, sort of attitudes of being in the world. And if we only have faith of kind of like, well, I'm sure it'll all just work out, um, we may not quite be able to stand up to those and put out the energy that will help us to change and create habits. So that is the function of wisdom, of being able to see, (laughs) see clearly. As soon as I said shine the light, the light went out. I'm wondering about that. Um, I hear we're getting an electrician, (laughs) just so you know. Um, So wisdom is about seeing clearly and seeing things as they actually are. Faith has a little bit of a quality sometimes of seeing things as they could be, you know, as um, sort of this sometimes a little rose-colored glasses view of the world. And wisdom is about seeing very clearly how things are. Okay, this is it. You know, I have to understand that this is where I'm at or this is the thing that I need to work with. Um, It's an intelligent understanding that comes from our own experience, Uh, not really from something that somebody else told us, and not really from um, intellectual knowledge, basically. So you can listen to what I'm saying tonight. I hope you will. But in the end, experiential knowledge is going to carry you 
at the deepest level, wisdom is direct seeing from a state of concentration. So from really settling the mind and looking very carefully at what's going on, at how the mind is creating experience, basically. But this, too, can have imbalances, right? So a mind that has too much wisdom, an excess of wisdom, compared to its balancing factor of faith, becomes clever and skeptical. And you know, the mind that has a little bit too much wisdom will think that it already knows. It may dismiss everything as dukkha. You know, oh, it's all, it's all just suffering. Aspiration can fade. And then the mind becomes brittle, um, sharp, cold, not very joyful. Uh, it's not that wisdom is a bad quality. We actually want to have a lot of wisdom. But it needs to be sweetened and warmed uh, with other qualities of the heart, including faith, but also including joy and Brahma-viharas. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says about this balance, the five faculties direct our energies toward the achievement of an inward harmony and balance essential to our true happiness and peace. I like those, I like that phrasing. So I want to talk a little bit about this balance. When I first heard this idea that there are balancing factors along the path, you can think of it this way, and faith and wisdom and energy and concentration are pairs that balance, I thought about um, kind of like a, a mechanical scale, you know, like those ones with two pans on either side, and you sort of put things on either one, and they one's heavier than the other. And so I thought, oh, you'll want to have the same amount of faith and wisdom on each side, and if you have too much wisdom weighing it down, then what you would do is, you know, add some more to the faith side, and then it'll balance. You don't want to remove the one that's too big, by the way, because all these are good qualities. You always want to add <laughs> some other good quality. Um, but I've learned over time and from experience that this is not the correct image, actually. So I'm, I'm a little bit scared to give it to you because now it's in your mind. But let me say immediately, this is not a correct image of this, these balancing mechanical kind of balance. Actually, instead, um, the faculties interact and so they're more like, have you ever seen trees that kind of grow so that they're leaning on each other and then um, grow together, or vines that grow up over a trellis and they interact at the top? It's kind of more like that, where they're interacting and strengthening each other, mutually strengthening each other, as well as leaning against each other. So, for example, um, there is, I am kind of a tendency toward being more of a wisdom type. That's just my my type, the way my mind was conditioned. And so I spent some effort to um, develop faith. And so, and not that I don't have faith, but it's like, it just helps, helps me balance. And so there was a time when, the, sort of the first time I started iterating on this, I thought, oh, what a good idea. I'm going to uh, I'm aspiring to cultivate more of the factors that open the heart and that lead to trust in the heart. And then I realized, because I had this image, oh, I'm going to add a little more to the faith side, no balance. Um, but then I realized that actually uh, aspiring to develop any of the faculties 
is an act of wisdom. <laughs> so um, I had already increased wisdom just by having that aspiration before I even started. So that gave me a clue that my image was not correct. So then I thought I would share a little bit about um, developing the faculty of faith or confidence, sadha in Pali um, is the word, S-A-D-D-H-A, sadha. Um, just to give you a flavor of that, if you're already a faith type, then it might give you additional ideas. If you're a wisdom type, it's a good suggestion. Um, the word sadha, by the way, literally means, in Pali, it means to place the heart upon, which I think is lovely. It's, it's offered as, I'm making it sound like a noun. It's a thing, faith. This is another reason why the mechanical balance image is wrong, because faith and wisdom are both verbs. They're both things that we do, actions that we do, ways that we meet the world. And so um, to place the heart upon is a much clearer idea of what faith is. It's an act that we do, an act of surrender, of giving, of opening. So at the beginning of my practice, um, one thing I started working with was bowing, which I hadn't really done before, and especially not in the way we do it here. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't have a lot of ritual and bowing and other things, you know, day to day. It's not like you walk in the hall and you're all expected to bow. There is a tradition, the Korean Zen tradition, where you do 108 bows before you sit. That's just what you do. You come in, you do 108 bows, and then you do your meditation. We don't do it that way. But I did notice, I, I mean, I became aware that people bow, I mean, we do do maybe at the end of the sit, which is optional, by the way, you don't have to do that. But I noticed that monastics would bow, and they would, you know, actually do sort of a prostration. And so I thought, hmm, I've never done this. So one of the first retreats I went on, I decided I was going to try it. This was a big deal for me. So I came into the hall one day, and a little bit before a sit, and I um, uh, I did a full prostration, actually. I went all the way onto my belly to see what that felt like, and I didn't like it, actually. <laughs> my first response was, oh, this feels uncomfortable, this feels, you know, I don't, I don't really like to doing this to a Buddha image, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, so a lot of mental, right, conceptual problems in the way of that. And uh, I didn't feel like I wanted to repeat it, actually. And so I didn't. <laughs> I was like, that was my first experience with bowing. So I tried it once, I did it, you know, checked the box, but it didn't really stick. And then later, not too much later, I went on a monastic retreat. And there you actually do bow. There's like, because you do chanting and other things, and there's a time when you um, do bows. And so I did them with everybody. And there, the... Um, the nuns leading the retreat were compassionate enough to give us instruction on bowing and explain a little bit about it and what it's about and why you do it and how you can do it. And that was so helpful um, to learn, for example, that um, there's a reason why um, you have five points on the ground, you have your two knees, your two hands, and then you touch your forehead to the ground. And those represent the three jewels. The five points represent the three jewels and your parents and your teachers, according to one understanding of that position. And then the other thing that was so helpful was to learn that the point is to put your head below your heart. 
so that you are um, saying that your heart is higher, you're making your heart higher than the thinking mind. And that was a nice symbol for me, that was helpful to know. And also that there's, um, and I could totally feel this once it was pointed out to me, that there's an act of um, letting go, of surrender. If you're going to get to the ground (laughs) smoothly, you have to let go of all kinds of things, like our sense that we want to be upright, Um, we keep our head above the ground for a reason because we're protecting it. So there's this sense of, and you have to kind of um, smoothly let go, let go, let go it the right way so you don't flop onto the ground, but also that you're able to get there. And so, you know, this is a coordination kind of thing. And there's a feeling of almost Tai Chi-like of doing a smooth action of getting the body to the ground. It becomes a mindful movement, like doing Tai Chi or Qigong. So having all of that background um, helped me understand that vowing is an embodiment. It's an act that embodies a lot of nice qualities, like uh, generosity, the giving of the heart, like um, humility of placing the head down, like uh, mindfulness of having a smooth movement of the body. There's some concentration in keeping the attention while you go down. So suddenly I discovered that there's all kinds of wisdom (laughs) embedded in the act of bowing. It brings forth all kinds of wonderful qualities. And so that really helped a lot. And I have to say that I like bowing now. I do it at home. I bow three times before I sit. Uh, Even though there's nobody there, it's not for anything, but it's for my own centering of my mind. Another thing people do is sometimes when they bow three times, they use it as a little mantra. They say, I bow to the Buddha, I bow to the Dharma, I bow to the Sangha. So you can do that if if it makes sense. Or you don't have to, you can just bow. So what I discovered then is that through this act of bowing, which nominally increases faith, um, what it actually does is it puts faith in contact with wisdom, and hence they balance. So it's not that you have a mechanical scale, they're disconnected on two separate pans, and you're putting more on the other. The problem when there's an imbalance is that the qualities are not connected. And so what we want to do is things that put the two imbalanced qualities in touch with each other. And then, like two fluids flowing together, and you know you have a red fluid and a blue fluid, and you put them together, and then you see these fingers of purple going through, and eventually they're connected. What we want to do is put faith in touch with wisdom, get them both there, and then they will mutually influence each other and balance. So it's a dynamic, uh, almost alive kind of balance. That's how they can, can do that. And, of course, what regulates that is mindfulness, the lead horse that's in the middle. So then I want to talk about... um, I want to give one more example. And that is um, prayer, which is not so much done in this uh, tradition. Although, you know, some people think of metta, loving-kindness practice, as a basically a prayer practice. But I've discovered that, um, for me, prayer adds a real juice to my practice. And 
it's done frequently in other Buddhist traditions. So I do Buddhist prayer, but it's um, you know, it's not so much from the Theravadan. And interestingly, um, prayer is also something that's very connected to wisdom. And if prayer is something that you're totally not into, by the way, or that that word is triggering for you, um, this would this fine to just let this part of the talk go by. <laughs> it's not necessary. Um, but I wanted to share it because it's meaningful to me, and it's also appropriate for this week of Visak of reflecting on our faith, on our practice. So there's kind of two different ways to think about. I find helpful to think about prayer. One is that the practice of prayer and devotion can help stop the mind. So they can actually be, they can actually bring about insight and wisdom in the mind. And that comes about because they are acts of letting go. So forget about who you're praying to. It's not important. You could put a name in there or not. You could put a concept in there or not. The point is that when the mind is praying or repeating a common phrase or opening itself in devotion, there's many ways to do it. Um, the thinking mind, the chattering, you know, the mind that you have to sit and listen to when you're trying to be mindful, that mind gets um, superseded by the prayer. So, and people who do metta practice uh, find this also. Like, let's say that you're repeating, to make it concrete, let's say you're repeating metta phrases, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe, may you live with ease, for example. If you do a metta retreat, where that's the focus of the retreat, you are expected to actually say those phrases all the time. Like even when you get up, you go to the bathroom, you go to the shower, you're eating, you have those phrases in your mind. And it's a, it's a serious practice. <laughs> and what people find over time is that those phrases replace the subconscious chatter, that commentator, sports commentator that's going on all the time in your mind, commenting on, well, that sure was a terrible thing to say, Kim, or okay, now we're going to be careful walking down the stairs. You know, whatever it is that's going in the background, the metaphrases um, supersede that and kind of supplant it, if you will. And that's a better thing to have running in your mind, right? Better, better kinds of um, mental states going on there. So prayer can do that. It stops the thinking mind in a certain way, and that is helpful for practice. Not that the point is to stop thinking, but you definitely don't want to be overwhelmed and just going with the thinking mind. So the way, there's a way in which prayer and devotion, when done uh, in a mindful way, will stop the thinking mind. And so they bring about you know, qualities for, basically qualities for insight to happen, because the mind just becomes settled, made joyful, made pliable, and no longer stuck in its own concepts. And then things can emerge into that. You can have really deep insights. And then the other way to think about prayer is just the flip of that, which is that stopping the mind creates the conditions for prayer. So um, if the mind, if you find a way to make the mind quiet, if you're able to um, let go for a while of conceptual thinking, that actually creates beautiful conditions for the mind to benefit the most from the prayer. These are instructions from 
called the Rinpoche that he gave to a group of students on one of the three-year retreats that he ran. He's a Tibetan teacher. And he said, um, he teaches in the uh, Kaju tradition, which uses the practice of Mahamudra. So he said, let your mind settle naturally in Mahamudra and recite the prayers from there. Because the students were asking, how do we do it? Why do we do it? He said, let your mind go into Mahamudra, which is a non-conceptual state, and then recite the prayers from there. And what was interesting is that um, one person who was on that retreat discovered that when he did that, when he deliberately opened his mind and made it let go of his concepts, then he discovered that, first of all, the prayers went into memory so much faster. It's like that supplanting process that I talked about happened almost instantly because there was it was like an open space for it to go into and then second is that the prayers were so much more easily understood like he could he could um, grasp their deeper meaning because prayers are like poetry they're they have words yes but the meaning underneath is something that you only discover when you open to them and get into them and I I um I haven't done a three-year retreat with you know Tibetan complicated Tibetan prayers like this, but I can say that I did a three-month retreat, and during that time I got attracted to a particular chant. Chant is also like prayer, because it stabilizes the mind on just some uh, simple simple teachings. And I got interested in a particular uh, chant, and I listened to it every day. It was just like, why not? I was on self-retreat, so... I had a little recording of it. I listened to it every day and chanted along with it. And I didn't think about it much. I just knew I was interested in this chant, so I thought, why not? And after about, I don't know, a month or five weeks out of the 12 weeks, I started having all these insights about the teaching that I was chanting. And it wasn't that I had done any thinking about it. It wasn't that I had done any reflection or anything, or talked about it with anyone. I didn't even tell the teachers I was doing this. Um, But it had just inserted itself into my heart and my mind. And I was in the shower, actually, and I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, this is a teaching about the path. And it's unfolding, and certainly it's very obscure, it's not direct the way it says it. And so, and then, you know, I would keep, I just kept doing it every day didn't think about it much, but I can totally relate to what he says about the prayer just getting into his mind, because I was in a much more non-conceptual state after four or five weeks of retreat, and I started understanding this little devotional, it's a three-minute chant, little devotional chant, and to this day it's very meaningful to me. I always have a nice feeling when I see that particular teaching. Um, so I know this goes in at some deeper level, and it's so important, especially if you're a wisdom type, to have these heart practices that uh, operate at that level. <coughs> so there's a way in which the conceptual mind gets put aside through this, and that's uh, important for all of us. So, there's this connection to, you know, what is faith? We've talked about many different angles of it. Probably what it comes back to is this very simple 
willingness to open to whatever arises in experience. I think that's a reasonable definition of faith, is the willingness to open to any experience that comes. There's nothing out there where we say, I'm going to sit as long as that doesn't come. Or, if that comes, it's bad, I didn't want it. Um, But instead, this total willingness, whatever comes, I will meet it. That's that's a big act of faith. If we can actually say it's okay for anything to arise in my practice. And then the flip side, it's okay for anything to cease. It doesn't matter what it is. If If it goes, it's fine. If it comes, it's fine. I think that's a very deep declaration of faith in a sense. Because it places faith in the ability to meet the moment, which is something very intangible, right? But listen to this quote from Sharon Salzberg from her book called Faith, which I recommend, by the way. Anything outside of us can crumble into dust. No symbol, no construction, no condition, no relationship, no life is immune to change. What can any of us place our faith in that endures? According to Buddhist teachings, to discover that is to know the deepest level of faith. I like that a lot. So I thought I'd also, just to close, and then we'll have, yeah, we'll have a little time for talking. Um, I thought I would read a few short prayers that are offered. Um, This is in a different tradition, of course. But the first one is really about aspiration. Let my heart turn to practice. Let practice become a path. Let this path dissolve confusion. Let confusion become wisdom. It's sweet, isn't it? And these are all short enough that you could memorize them. Knowing that there is nothing outside or inside to free me, I take refuge in Buddha. Knowing that experience and awareness are not two, I take refuge in Dharma. Knowing that there is nothing to grasp or oppose, I take refuge in Sangha. Aspiration for awakening mind. Awakening mind is precious. May it arise where it has not arisen. May it not fade where it has arisen. May it ever grow and flourish. Good fortune. Everything known, nothing to understand. Everything clear, nothing to explain. Everything in its place, nothing to do. May the joy of this way touch beings everywhere. And finally, an aspiration to understand emptiness, the deepest understanding. Send me energy to let believing in self fall away. Send me energy to see through life's illusions. Send me energy for reactive thinking to end. 
send me energy to know mind has no beginning. Send me energy to let confusion resolve itself. Send me energy to know what arises as beyond words. So if it's of interest, I encourage you to find some short phrases that are meaningful to you. You don't have to use these. You can actually use your own. Um, And see what it's like to just sit, uh, maybe repeat them five or ten times at the beginning of a sit, and then just stop and see what happens. Or bring them to mind whenever the mind gets distracted. For example, you wander off, you realize, oh, I was unmindful. Say it again and start again. Uh, However you want to do it. And just see, this prayer is so individual. See how it unfolds for you, if it's of interest. Okay, so are there any questions or comments? Yeah. I'm curious, you talked about the three-minute chant. Was that in English, or was that in a separate language that you didn't understand? I was doing it in Pali, but I had the English translation. So I wanted to. I learned the Pali, which was lovely, um, but I knew what it meant. I think it's important to know what it means. Mm-hmm. And it would have been fine to do it in English. I just wanted to learn the Pali. Yeah. That's great. I was kind of struck by um, the phrase you used of putting your heart on something. To place the heart upon. To place yeah. the heart upon. Which, um, is that kind of the same as when you say, I had my heart set on something? I think it sounds different to me. Having your heart, to me, having my heart set on something um, is a little bit confining. It's about attachment, really. Yeah, it could be. It could be an aspiration, but it does have a little bit of a sense of, I'm going to be hurt if it doesn't happen. And I feel like to place the heart upon is a little bit more an act of opening and offering. Yeah. Yeah. That was Sharon Salzberg's translation. Uh And she says actually that the word, because it's a verb, we should say instead of faith as a noun, we should say to (laughs) faith. F A I T H E. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, kid. Mm. Uh, I I hear you about us finding our own prayers, but I also really like the ones that you write. Uh huh. Send me an email, I'll send them to you. I like the talk about bowing, which uh-huh. has also become very meaningful to me. I, mm. I love bowing uh, to each other. It's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, in some ways, any form of bowing, even just bowing your head, but when you get down on your knees, it's um, surrendering to gravity. Mm-hmm. It's like, Okay, I've been. I'm working so hard to hold myself upright. Right. Let it go. Just let go. Let gravity do its thing. Get to the lowest energy yeah. position. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to think about it. So it's sort of uh, giving in to the force of nature, which is a lot of which our practice is about. Which is winning anyway. So it's like that's right. It's our it practice, <laughs> practicing for the moment when we are going to lie down. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Is um, prayer related to having like an everyday life practice phrase, like a short phrase? So, so, so sometimes I we use a phrase like um, just in everyday life, uh, like what do I really need now to be happy? And I kind of will use that when uh-huh. any yeah. time a little sort of difficulty, a little or big comes up in the day, it kind of uh, recalls my attention to the fact that actually the materials are, are right there. But is that... I, I was just, that's an interesting sure question. I think it could be held in a variety of ways. I don't know how you hold it. For me, when I use practice phrases, I think of them as an act of wisdom. It's a, 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 the practice coming in and um, being the, the place from which I act. But in the same way, I'm, I'm placing faith in using that instead of my habitual reaction. Um, so there's, they, they could both be there. But a practice phrase is more an act of discernment. What you're saying, which would be a wisdom thing, I guess. I feel like for me that's how it unfolds, yeah. but I was pointing out that there there's a dimension of it that <laughs> includes faith because you're saying, I'm going to trust this instead of... I mean, if you didn't have that phrase, you would still respond to the situation, but you would probably respond in some habitual uh, way. And so bringing that phrase in to, um, to help is an act of faith also, mm-hmm. if you see it that way. It's, it's maybe an example where they're, they're getting put into contact and are balancing. Yeah. But I think of prayer, specifically prayer, more as something that is um, done from a place of stillness. And, you know, from a, it depends, I guess, if you're using your heart or your mind more. Mm. They're not really separate, of course, but they're different facets of the same heart-mind. Yeah. I think we should all bow to each other then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.